listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hands Up Podcast. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing pretty well. Hey, Mick. <laughs> Great's an overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, podcast producer of the Skylight Books podcast series, Mick Kowalewski, and I'm here again with my co-host. Maddie Gobo, events manager. And we and are both joined by... Sydney Lopez, bookseller. <laughs> hey, Sydney. Uh, so we got a pretty good episode for you guys today. Um, we've got another little book recommendation from uh, bookseller Andy. And then Sydney, we've got a pretty great conversation between you and our uh, other friend slash bookseller, Ben Olcott. Yeah, um, we were supposed to record about a 15, 20 minute conversation on um, how we got into bookselling, books that were, you know, really formative for us, but we ended up uh, in typical bookseller fashion talking for about an hour and a half um, <laughs> <laughs> about uh, various bookstores we worked in um, and just books that we love. And it was really, really fun. And uh, I'm sure you have edited it into something that's listenable. So thank you. Um, I, I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> too much out. I think it'll be completely it's a it's a really a joy it made me miss you guys so much because oh. I'm still quarantined haven't seen you guys in person in yeah. too long uh so it it, it gave me feels man it gave yeah me feels. we're just a couple of chatty cathy's that like books so just, it, and that's really what like the behind the counter vibe is totally, <laughs> totally. So hopefully we'll give you guys a little taste of that um Let's see. And then, uh, Maddie, you had a fun little segment planned for us to open up the podcast with. Oh, yeah. Um, so I saw on Twitter someone asking booksellers to recommend books that could be read to the soundtrack of Fiona Apple's masterpiece, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And uh, I went straight to Sydney to ask this question because she's a huge Fiona Apple stan. Yes. I um, the The day that Fiona Apple's album was released. I got 
texts from a series of friends in rapid succession that just said new Fiona in all caps with exclamation points. And I never felt better understood um, by friends or other people. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, with great ambition, I'm gonna try my best to find a book that corresponds with each song, which might be too much. Um, if not, um, maybe just books that correspond thematically and in feeling. Um, but if you haven't listened to Fetch the Bolt Cutters yet, uh, do yourself a favor. Pour yourself your favorite beverage, sit in a comfy spot, and uh, just let it wash over you, you know? <laughs> bookseller so approved. <laughs> bookseller, really. Is there a more bookseller approved artist than Fiona Apple? Honestly. Probably not. I mean, maybe, maybe the Cocteau Twins. Oh God. <laughs> Every bookstore I've ever been in is always playing the Cocteau Twins. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about, about those guys. I mean, it's just very pleasant. Uh, I mean, cherry colored funk. Who doesn't want that, you know? That sounds so um, great right now. Yeah, Fiona Apple wrote uh, Criminal in an hour when she was 17. So she, was, she wanted to release her first album and they were like, we need a hit. And she was like, all right, you want a hit? She like, went to a room, wrote Criminal in an hour, and was like, here's your hit. So. <laughs> That's boss. Yeah. A legend. Yeah, like truly a legend from the time she was a wee babe. I wonder if yeah. we could brainstorm right now, like, what, who are the most Fiona Apple-esque writers off the top of your head? Um, off the top of my head, let's see. Um, I was Carmen thinking... Maria Machado. Yes, Carmen Maria Machado for sure. Yeah, Maddie, you yeah. had a good one in our little preamble today. Yeah, my thought was was Joy Williams. Um, first of all, because Fiona Apple and Joy Williams both love dogs. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, Joy Williams also has a, a very strong anti-establishment mood in most of yeah. her writing. Um, her book Breaking and Entering. I think uh -huh. is the most fetch the bolt, bolt cutters like literally because it's literally about people breaking into rich people's houses. Um, oh, I love that. Uh, it's fantastic. Highly recommend. Also has a great dog in it. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is kind of corny, but de Beauvoir, I'm literally looking at the book on my shelf right now called the woman destroyed. And I love that book and uh, very much uh, similar vibe. So <laughs> Nice. Is there, here's a question, is there like a book or an album, is there a book you, you can't read without thinking of an album, a specific album, or vice versa? <clears throat> um, I can't read The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides without thinking of The Talking Heads. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, white, the white ennui. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, The White Ennui, that is, like, delicious. I've read that book so many times, because um, I was like, ah, oh, it's so great to be in love with unavailable men, isn't it? And then I, like, read that book and, like, thought of the talking heads at the same time. Um, <laughs> very important, like, 21 to 23-year-old uh, stage of my life. But, yeah, those two are, like, super closely linked in my, in my head. Yeah, that's a good one. For me, um, I, uh, when Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly came out, um, I was in the middle of reading The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Oh, shit. And <laughs> like, like on the subway in DC. And like, I cannot listen to that album, that masterpiece, the greatest albums of all time, To Pimp a Butterfly, without thinking of Toni Morrison or see Toni Morrison 
name without thinking of Kendrick Lamar. I think they're interesting. Yeah. I feel like that works. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. In all aspects, sort of like the jazzy vibe of To Pippa Butterfly plus yeah. obvious thematic links. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Maddie? This is a hard question. Uh, I guess what has popped into my head while you guys were talking is Thomas Bernhard. Uh, I'm not going to pick a book, but his general vibe, I think, pairs quite well with the Silver Jews. Um, just because they're, they're misanthropes. Um, they're incredibly funny, but also so dark. Mm -hmm. uh, pitch black humor. And there's, there's def a definite sort of uh, horror of crowds in both of their work. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Silver Jews lately. Uh, Dave Berman passed away earlier yeah, this year or late last year. Um, he's just an incredible lyricist and, and poet, and his work deserves more attention, much like Thomas Bernhardt's. Yes. Yeah, I'm really gonna, um, really gonna put myself on blast here. I'm not familiar with either. <gasps> I know, I know. <gasps> now you have something to look up. Too, right? What is his other project besides the Silver Jews? Oh, uh, Pink Mountain Tops? Yes, yes. Pink like both, both so good. Both so Very good. Very good. So uh, we want to get to uh, the actual content of the episode. This is the, this is the problem with being a bookseller is that you just get so caught up <laughs> talking to each other about this stuff. We um, love the chat. Yeah, so we're definitely going to throw it to Andy and then we'll revisit. You'll hear Sydney's dulcet tones later on in the episode for our main event. But before we get to that, what have you guys been reading? Uh, let's see. I have been reading a short story collection by Ha Seong Nan called Bluebeard's First Wife. Oh my um, God. It is weird as hell. Uh, very surreal, sort of domestic fictions. Um, perfect bedtime reading to give yourself weird dreams. Uh, it's coming out from Open Letter Press, um, who do fantastic uh, translated work. And it has a blurb from Brian Evanson, my boo, my favorite, um, <laughs> the master of, of horror and strangeness. Um, so I, it's, it's good. It's good stuff. So if you think your dreams are too boring, check out Bluebeard's First Wife, is what you're saying. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Sid, what about you? I am reading Norma Jean Baker of Troy, the new Ann Carson. Mm. Um, because I don't think I've ever loved anyone as much as I love Anne Carson. <laughs> um, I, you know, the first book I ever read by her was Autobiography of Red, and I have read it so many times and have, like, a bunch of really, like, emo notations and underlines, and my copy is just destroyed. And so when I saw this, um, uh, her new story, and it's um, the stories of Marilyn Monroe and Helen of Troy. It's just like her, perf I mean, you know, she's a professor of classics. She translates stuff from ancient Greek. So it's, she's obviously a genius. And then she has this capacity to tie in, um, you know, like more contemporary culture. And it's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, um, yeah, she, uh, she tugs my heartstrings every time. <laughs> I think Ann Carson has some Fiona Apple connections too. Oh yeah, 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 totally. Um, ow, sorry, my cat just attacked me. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I might cut that out. 
I might not. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's the signal that it's time for us to stop. Yeah, she just lunged at my elbow. But um, yeah, Anne Carson, amazing. She's a cancer. She was great at feelings. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm reading. Nick, what about you? I've been reading uh, the Japan and India journals of Joanne Kiger. Um, she was a beat movement contemporary of, you know, the Kerouacs and the, and the Ginsburgs, who, Ginsburg, she did not like at all. This is the best part about the book, I think, is her just going on. She spent like two weeks with Allen Ginsberg in India, I believe, and just found him to be the most exhausting person. It seems like it. <laughs> um, stuff in the most drama, but also it's just like, she was a really good poet and uh, I think has some really interesting insights about Zen Buddhism. And um, there's this great passage where uh, she includes, she journals about a, a piece of dialogue she had with a male contemporary who said, don't you want to learn Zen and lose your ego? To which she replied, after all of the struggle to attain one, <laughs> I can't I recommend it. her enough. She's great. She's great. <laughs> That's so. awesome. So let's get to it. Um, thank you guys yeah. for joining me. Thank Sid, you, we'll Mick. see you a little yeah. later. Yeah, just, you know, fast forward or don't over <laughs> me, whenever you want. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you guys later. And uh, for all you listeners, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name is Andy. I'm going to be talking to you about my most recent staff pick, the exhibition of Persephone Q. Percy's at the edge of something, perhaps her relationship with her own womanhood, or the choices, or maybe lack thereof, that have led her to such a contained life. But now more than ever, she is grappling with her identity. Told in sparse poetic prose, this novel examines self-perception versus outward perceptions, gender roles, and technology in a way that leaves you haunted, wondering if what you see in yourself is really seen by others. I think this book really has an interesting take on gender and plays a lot with this idea of women being likable or not. Um, and I think that's especially important right now in our political climate. Thank you. I don't wanna be helped. <laughs> I wanna suffer. Well, why don't you go in your living room where there's air conditioning? Because it's still, because the, it's the neighborhood that's loud. I have like yeah. there are there are just people yelling all the time. <laughs> literally that. It literally is something like that. Just screaming? <laughs> yeah. All right, so I hit record, so we're we're ready whenever. Look at this bread I, look at this bread I baked. Ew. Is that the sourdough? Mm-hmm. Okay, so your starter your starter got fixed. Yeah. She's your working. Starter has started. Um, okay, so do I have to introduce it as like, this is the hand sale, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, but maybe, maybe you should just say it again. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, listeners. This is a Skylight Books podcast called The Hand Sale. My name is Sydney. I'm a bookseller with Skylight Books. And I'm talking today with Ben, another bookseller at Skylight Books. Say hi to everyone, Ben. Hi, everybody. Hey, Sydney. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are how are you doing? I'm chilling. Um, yeah, drinking some Bordeaux in Lovely. my apartment, ready Lovely. to talk about um, books with one of my favorite booksellers. 
Aw, likewise. <laughs> I've taken many of your recommendations for, uh, for books for book club, for the Coyotes book club, which I run at the store. Uh, some of them have been more successful. <laughs> I think it's a, good, it's a good hit rate. But there's one notable exception we won't, <laughs> we won't mention. We won't go there. Um, yeah, like there, was a, there was some debate within the group. Um, but some other notable way. hits, like um, House of Mirth by Edith oh, yeah. Wharton. Every, yeah. Every. That, that, that was a great one. That was a great suggestion. I'd never read it. I, I had only read, I think like in, in high school, you read, there's some Edith Wharton book that everybody reads, right? Ethan Frome. Ethan Frome, right. Everybody reads yeah. Ethan Frome. But yeah. House of Mirth is the one, and there's another book that I can't think of off the top of my head. Age right of here. Innocence. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a big Wharton that's head. A, <laughs> a Wharton head. That's, that's some A-plus book selling right there. Um, um, all right. Yeah, it was, it was a great success. So. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. You guys should all check out Coyotes. I think you guys are doing virtual meetings, correct? Yeah, we are still doing virtual meetings. Uh, last uh, month, we did Flights by Olga Tokarczyk. Um, this month, we are doing The Overstory by Richard Powers. And oh. next month, we are going to do The Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. That book is so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that one. I recently just started reading Ursula Le Guin. I think... Uh, because of your recommendation. I think, I think you recommended it. Yeah. And she's, she's genius. So it's really looking forward to that. She's incredible. I'm really surprised they haven't made Lathe of Heaven into a movie yet. It's so yeah. adaptable. Hmm. And it's very relevant um, to the ongoing conversation around technology and... and <laughs> That's like a Christopher Nolan movie just like on a platter. <laughs> I know, right? Like... Yeah. Come on, Chris, my yeah. guy. Come on. Um, all right, let's get to it. So right. we are just going to chat about some general book selling, you know, um, I don't really have the word for it, but we're just, you know, <laughs> this is your look into the mind and life of a bookseller in an independent bookstore yeah. in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. So Ben, I want you to tell me what your first book selling job was. Okay. Um, I'll go first and then you go. Cause you've been, you've been an LA person uh, with all your bookstore jobs, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. So, so I just got my first book selling job in, in New York where I was living right out of college. And I was sort of like going headfirst into literary things. I was like, I'm a writer. I'm living in New York. I was like, working for um, Oxford University Press, but not in the fun and cool trade side. I was working in textbooks, college textbooks, <laughs> um, which was, you know, literary-ish. But I was sort of like, uh, you know, I was also trying to write some reviews on the side and I'd gotten some things published at this like magazine called KGB Bar uh, Lit Magazine, which is just a like digital version or digital cipher of this like very famous bar, like literary bar. But anyway, the, the editor of that magazine just gave me a, a job listing like out of nowhere and was like, this bookstore is looking for a manager. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was 23 years old and I didn't know a damn thing about managing anything, but I was like gung-ho. I was like, let's do this. I'm gonna do it. Like 
I'm going to be the manager of this book club. I like saw my whole future in front of me. And for some reason, like when I was like, yes, I'll do it. She, uh, the person connected me to a, an email, Paula Cooper at paulacoopergallery.com. Now, Paula Cooper is like one of the most high powered art gallerists in New York City. Like oh, wow. absolutely incredibly famous from like the 60s and 70s. I did not know this going in, I had no clue. And I don't, I don't know much about art, period. But so I decide to, you know, I'm just kind of like, okay, let's go. I don't, you know, I'll talk to Paula Cooper about this, whatever. I don't even know her affiliation with this bookstore. So I get there and it's like, I get to the gallery and it's like, there's this huge like Christian Marclay, like, like it's in this room that's probably 40 feet by 40 feet. This like cube, it's like so intimidating. There's like all these like incredibly erudite and articulate and smart looking New Yorkers like around this gallery. And I go up to Paula Cooper's office and she's like seven years old, like beautiful, like it's such a presence. And I'm like, I try to convince this woman that I should be the manager of her bookstore. <laughs> Cause it turns out it's her bookstore. She owns the fricking bookstore. It's across the street from her gallery. Oh my gosh. So she takes one look at my resume, which is like six months at Oxford University Press. And she's like, you have absolutely no qualifications for this job. <laughs> she literally looks at me in the face and says, you're not qualified. Oh. And then she was like, well, let's go down to the bookstore. And eventually, <laughs> eventually I convinced her to just like give me a day at the bookstore. Because I just really wanted to work at, the books, at a bookstore. So you managed to finesse Paula Cooper into giving you a job? I think she was more of like a sympathy thing. She was like, this idiot comes in like, you know, <laughs> saying, I'm ready to be your, your manager. Like I had like this whole thing, like my skills from Oxford University Press are transferable. No, but <laughs> that's, that's how I got my first job. I snuck in. I really appreciate the confidence with which you went into that uh, situation. More like ignorance. I really had no clue who or what I was doing. <laughs> but that it's was a great baby. job. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. And I stumbled into just this really, really cool little bookstore in Chelsea. It was a great experience. What, what's it called again? It's called 192 Books. 192 Books. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not familiar tiny. with it, but I will have to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really tiny. It's not one of the big ones, but. Cool. It was awesome. It was great. All right, your turn. Let's hear about you. <laughs> I first worked at a Roman's bookstore in Pasadena, which I think is the largest and oldest independent bookstore in Southern California. They've been around since like 1890 something. I don't remember exactly when. Wow. Um, and I, <laughs> I used to go there a lot in high school because I'm a native Angelino, Eagle Rock. Um, before there were artisanal cheese shops in Eagle Rock. Um, <laughs> so as a 16-year-old, my best friend and I, we would go see movies at the Lemley. Nice. And then we would go to Romans uh, afterwards and just read. Um, <laughs> so at 16, we were like, dude, we could totally work here. Let's just yeah. you know, put in some apps and, uh, um, you know, we're totally <laughs> qualified, similar to you, sure. except being 16. And also <laughs> having no professional experience whatsoever, like being completely, completely like not at all qualified. Yeah. Um, and then fast forward about four, seven years after a year or two after I graduated from college, um, I applied to Romans again um, as a seasonal worker for the Christmas season. Right. And uh, if you worked retail, 
at all in any capacity, oh, yeah. just in a bookstore. It's absolutely bananas. Uh, yeah, that's that's the crazy time. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, whatever the, the saying is. Yeah, something like um, that. So yeah, I started working there and then eventually I was brought on um, as just like a regular bookseller, yeah. um, not seasonal. And yeah, that's how I got my start. I was there so, for like a little over a year. Cool. So when you, when you were doing that seasonal stuff, that was not, was that like hand selling books on the floor or was that working in like the back or something? Like what, what was that job like? Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was being a bookseller out the gate, oh, okay. um, like, like doing the hand selling. And because it was Christmas, that was actually like, um, pretty important because Romans, yeah. unlike Skylight and some other bookstores actually has departments within the store. Right. So if you're actually in the books department itself, then that's your job is you are a bookseller. Whereas you can be in other departments, you can do sidelines or cash register or they have like a really big pen um, department. So I was actually a bookseller and um, yeah, it's interesting because you, you always think that if you love to read or if you're a big fan of books that that's automatically going to translate into, Oh, of course I could sell books. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a pretty steep learning curve when it comes Absolutely. to, um, you know, you have to acquaint yourself with everything that's new yeah. <laughs> um, as fast as you can. You kind of have to develop this like vocabulary for um, assessing like, you know, different people's wants and needs and like familiar, mm -hmm. familiarize yourself with a lot of different books because I mean, you have to be able to sell books that you've never read, you know, for sure. for and sure. you have to be able to think of a book, even if you haven't read it and be like, I think this will work for you. And yeah. You know, some people might see it as disingenuous. I don't particularly see it that way. I think of it as just like, you know, the more that you can do that, the more that you can ask sure. someone books that they've read. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't see it as disingenuous either, though. I mean, I, I guess I, it could be seen that way, but I feel like it's, it's like you. It's not that you don't engage with the books at all as a bookseller, like even the ones that you've never read, like you just engage with them in a slightly different way. Like, it's not like you don't know the story of like the authors or the book or the publication mm -hmm. or what, like that's all information, you know, but you just have to find a shorthand mm -hmm. for, you know, kind of giving, giving it to people or telling, telling its story to people. Cause yeah. yeah, people, people want their books. It doesn't have to exactly, you know, coincide with the exact books you read. That would make you a bad bookseller. If that was the only thing you could talk <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah. Um, did you know, I mean, this might be a, a sort of silly question, but were yeah. there any, was there anything that um, sort of stood out to you immediately in selling books on the East Coast and West Coast, like New York versus LA? That oh, old... the, the difference? Yeah. Like, w was there anything noticeable? Were there, were there you know, like pretty stark differences in, in taste or was it pretty hmm. across the board, like Skylight was similar to 192? They, they were kind of similar. I mean, the one thing about 192 books is it was like, I mean, when I say it was a tiny store, it was probably the size of a, of a large bedroom, maybe not even that large. So it was just crammed with books and it was, a lot of it was art books. So obviously, because as I was saying, Paula Cooper was the owner and she's, you know, this big art person. So, I mean, art books take up a lot of space. So that it was like we had art books on one wall 
And then the rest of it was just like as much literature as you could stuff into this place. So wow. it was fa it was fairly specialized. I will say there was not much like general readership kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I will say that the people who came in were almost always looking. The, maybe the one difference is people who came into 192 books pretty much already knew what they were looking for. And it was more just a matter of, of asking whether we had it. I see. Um, I was rare. I rarely brought people around and was like, maybe the only time would be around holiday time when somebody's just like, give me a good gift idea. Like here are five traits of somebody that wants a book or who I want to give a book to like, go ahead. But a lot of people came in and like, didn't really want to get talked to that much. Like they were, they went straight to their section and like, maybe you had some rapport at the front. I think in, I think in, in, in LA, there is definitely more of, there's definitely more chat as part of the, the process, I think. Yeah. Though I don't want to overstate that. Like that's, it's certainly not always the case. Yeah. But um, I find that people are more, more often saying, well, I don't really know what I'm looking for. Skylight again is also a more general, more general bookstore. Yeah. For sure. Like it's, it, they're kind of different. I see. Yeah. What have, I mean, what have you, what have you, uh, what have your observations been over the years? Um, let's see. Uh, Skylight definitely caters to a, a different demographic than Pasadena does. Uh, yeah. Romans in Pasadena. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of overlap in terms of being like, um, you know, more general readership bookstores that um, have a lot for everyone. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think Skylight, you know, being sort of in the nexus of like Los Feliz and Hollywood and Silver Lake, you know, there's, um, you know, there, there are things we have that like sort of cater more to people that are interested in performing arts or acting or art, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And, um, we have less of, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly uh, what yeah. I'm getting at, <laughs> but- uh, Well, there's the whole arts annex, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have a whole store dedicated to, to just fine arts. You know, yeah. that, and that's, you know, people are in there all the time who are super, super knowledgeable of, of what they're, they're asking for. Yeah, um, it's intimidating. There's, there's often customers that <laughs> know so yeah. much more than I do in the arts annex. I mean, we have, we have some really <laughs> incredible booksellers that like- yeah. Near the arts annex like the back of their hand um, oh yeah like our magazine buyer he's amazing um yeah but yeah i mean i guess you know having <clears throat> never worked at a bookstore in another city yeah. um you know i i don't have like too much to offer in terms of like you know pretty stark differences that i've mm. noticed um yeah i mean it's definitely my favorite part of being a bookseller is someone you like my two favorite things are either someone um that you recommend a book to and they're really excited about it yeah or someone that presents a really good challenge to you and it sort of is like you unite the whole front like you go around and ask all the different booksellers like i have someone you know the last thing they read was like i don't know like clarice lispector and they're looking for short yeah. stories with like x y and z elements and like you all put your heads together and you're like i'm going to find the perfect book for this person um and you come up with uh, Lucia Berlin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, perfect.
perfect. But um, yeah, there's like, for me, it's like definitely the highlight of being yeah. a bookseller is, uh, you know, something that like someone wanting to read something that I'm excited about. Um, totally. You know, is like the highlight of being a bookseller for me. Or just getting getting something exactly right. Like if somebody yeah. just like, they're like, they kind of don't know what they're looking for. They give you three other suggestions, as you were saying. And then you give them a, a thing that you're kind of like, maybe this is right. And they read like the back cover and they're just like, yeah, yep. Like that's exactly what I wanted. Like this and sometimes is there's people, there's people that come in and they're like looking for books and you, you know, sometimes I go a little overboard and I'll, I'll hand them a stack of like four or five uh -huh. And then yeah. I like see them go to the register with all of them. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, yes. <laughs> I did my job. I went four for four. Yes. Yeah. No, it's super exciting. Um, yeah, it is. I actually had a woman email me. Um, she came in, was looking for some books and she was one of those customers. She got like four yeah. or five of the books that I recommended. One of them was, uh, I think it was like A Visit from the Goon Squad um, uh -huh. by Jennifer Egan, The Pisces by Melissa Broder. Um, she was looking for like good, engaging, sort of like vacation-y reads, but also just like nice. solid books. Um, and there are a couple other ones. I don't remember what they were. Uh -huh. And then she came back and she was like, I loved all of your books. And then I gave her another round. And then about like six months later, she emailed me and was like, I moved to New York, but I appreciated your book recommendations so much when I was in L.A., like, what are you reading now? Do you have any recommendations? And that was like, oh, that's great. I think like my single like crowning achievement as a bookseller was just like this amazing woman that like I had developed this rapport with, like, you know, only through the bookstore emailing me to ask me my opinion about books. I was like, I've made it. This is it. This is my that's Michael. That's the holy book. grail. <laughs> that's the holy grail. I, th I feel like every bookseller's dream is to be like a personal bookseller seller to somebody who really loves books. Yeah. Like almost like a personal chef, like a book buyer for somebody oh, who has like a bazillion gosh. dollars. Yeah, that would That'd be oh nice. What a dream job. <laughs> I feel like that's I a dream job. Lot. Yeah, I feel like I still have a lot to learn before I could do that. But I mean, definitely ranks yeah. top five of of dream jobs. Yeah, this um, isn't a mass. This isn't a master class, though. <laughs> though maybe we should start recording those. Um, <laughs> so that's how you got into book selling. Was one ninety two? Um, yeah were do you think you what are like some of the most formative books that you read and did they yeah. get you book selling or did you discover them after you became a bookseller or both so yeah this is i feel like this is this is interesting because it's like formative at what time like as a, a formative as as a reader um those those are like you know for me they're like hopelessly boyish but they're like books like dune and like lord of the rings and like oh, his dark materials like i obsessively read these books like you know at a pretty young age and i just like went as far as i could and there actually are like a ton of sequels to a lot of these things they're not like as good as the originals but they're if you want to go deep into the world there's usually a lot of world to get into mm -hmm. and that's kind of like what like extensive world building is what i'm gathering yeah, so like people for Dune, for example, like people read book one of Dune. There are, I believe there are seven more books in like the main line of Dune. And then there are, are six. Long? Yeah, they're all as long. Some are longer. Hmm. And then there's a whole, there are like six other books that like tell about the whole like history of the world. And I read every single one. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, I just fell 
head over heels with some of these things. And like, you know, Lord of the Rings read the Silmarillion, like all the other stories, like, you know, I was just obsessed. Yeah. And then I think later I, I fell, I mostly fell in love with modernists, like Joyce, Wolf, Hemingway, um, you know, not an uncommon segue, but it was really, to me, it was really, I got into book selling because, or it's hard to say, it's hard to say if one title was so formative, but I definitely got into book selling because I knew I wanted to be like immersed in contemporary books. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I needed to know more because I really wanted to be a writer. And I was just like, my education is like a little bit behind here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I can't say there's one title, but I can say that it was just in, it was a moment when I just decided I wanted to be completely immersed in this literature thing. <laughs> and I, you know, I was just like, well, you got to work at a bookstore then. There's no way around it. Yeah. But it was also around the time when I was, like, even though I felt I was behind, I knew I was reading, like, enough to to sort of know what I was talking about for the first mm-hmm. time. But that wasn't for years. I would, I did not have your gall. I was at 16 years old. I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like reading His Dark Materials for the fourth time. I wasn't about to go apply for a job at, you know, some bookstore. Yeah, no, I am... Um... I never quite got into a lot of those um, sort of really classic um, yeah. fantasy and science fiction. It's it's only more recently, you know, that I've started reading like Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin. Um, I've never read Dune. I have a copy of it that I've been to. I've tried so many times to read The Fellowship of the Rings, and I get <laughs> I get to the part where they're in the forest, and I'm oh, just yeah. like, how long are they going to be in no, this no, no. forest? <laughs> Look, a note for, are, for my boy. <laughs> I know a note for Tolkien. Like, look, you got to get out of the first act a little bit faster. All right, we've been in the Shire for a while. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it. extremely charming. You know, they stop. What is it? The prancing pony that they stop at? Prancing pony. Yeah. And you know, they're like gossiping, and like you know, uh-huh. like, you know, uh, Bilbo is like very bizarre, and you know, oh, it's I, great. I mean, there's so much of it that I I really enjoy. I just um, I have never quite had the patience to um make it around like that first bend um yeah you know i find it so charming it's weird but um what was what what do you think is uh one of the first books that you read that you were like i want to write something like this oh i know exactly what it is um i it was a eureka moment for me in my life um it was like um i like started college and i was a pre-med major for my first year and a half no way i was yeah i was and I was garbage at it. I was no good. I <laughs> like, you know, straight B minuses in gen chem. And like, I even went into organic chemistry. And it was just like, the way that goes is like, you're not going to get, you're not going to get into a good enough med school with those grades. So you might as well quit, which is honestly, it was the right call. But then I decided I wanted to like, really, I, I, for some reason, I mean, my parents are very literary and I, I had always done well in the humanities. And for some reason, I just decided I wanted to take an English course. Mm-hmm. And so that's, this was leading into my second semester of my sophomore year. So during that winter break, I picked up, and this is, this is good. I, oh, no. I, I want to be honest about this, though it's going to be. I, I picked up Infinite Jest. And oh, no. 
<laughs> look, no, look, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. It, I, I picked it up and I, I just look. Say what you want about about a lot of his character, and there's a lot to be said that's not excellent. Um, and of course, like the cult's following behind him is ridiculous, and all of the weird toxic masculinities that come with it are not not great. But when I first picked up that book, it was talking about a lot of things that resonated with me, you know, playing sports and depression and like substances and all of this stuff. And I just hadn't seen it before. I had never seen anything like that. And it was like, to me, it just, it, it, it just opened a part of me. I just remember thinking, I, I want to try that. Whatever he just did to my brain, I want to know if I can do that. Yeah. Um, and then I just, uh, literally ever since then, I pursued it. Didn't finish Infinite Jest, by the way. I, I, got, I got 200 pages in and I was like, all right, <laughs> I, have, I have a life to live now, but. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I, I sort of um, am disappointed that certain authors are reduced to like their following, you know? Because I, I mean, yeah. David Foster Wallace is, you know, certainly, um, with his past of like domestic violence and uh, exactly, it's not things like that is is super problematic, um, and that's a much larger conversation in terms of do we discount the art of all artists that have um, mm -hmm. behaved less than admirably? But um, I find that you know, like liking certain authors becomes a shorthand for like what kind of a person you are or what you're into or. Yeah. or your, your sort of like capacity for like intellectual engagement and that things go from like there's this like cultural curve where things go from being like below the radar and brilliant to like ascending to this like star-like position and then yeah. like once the immediacy sort of um gets more distant then it, they kind of come a become a cliche yeah, and i feel like sure. that's a little bit what happened with david foster wallace and like another author that that happened to you that I really lament is Murakami. Yeah, uh, very because much. Because for me, Murakami was like, I think definitely my entryway into, mm. into like a whole different world of literature. You know, I'd, I've, I'd of course, I um, read amazing things, but you know, I didn't really, I didn't really think of literature as like this conversation or, 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 yeah. or this world that I wanted to immerse myself in, like I read books and I liked them and that was that. And then I read The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, my sophomore yeah. year of college, um, at the behest of a, <laughs> a guy I was dating at the time. Oh, and as it so often is. A stand-up comedian from New Jersey. <laughs> oh. Um, who also was a big Infinite Jest fan, so. Oh my God. Um, I, regret, so I regret what I've said already. Yeah, I mean, there's like, <laughs> there's a laundry list of cliches here. Yeah, but, of course, of course. Um, but I read it, and I, my my mind was blown. Like, I, it, it was a total entryway for me into literature that, you know, is unconventional and different. And, and yeah. you know, I, I can see how my, my taste um, definitely... You know, and I, I went on to read almost every single Murakami book um, that he put out. And then, you know, I sort of distanced myself from him a little bit when he sort of, in that 
you know, aforementioned cultural curve became a bit of a, of a cliche. Yeah. And I felt like a strange sense of shame. And then I was like, why? He's actually a really amazing storyteller. Like I yeah. value his work and it was very instrumental in, um, yeah. What the way I read. What do you think really gripped you about Murakami? Because I, I am not so familiar with Murakami. I really, I really only recently stepped into the, into the Murakami waters and I was pretty astounded. I, I thought it was superb writing despite whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, but it's, I'm, I'm curious what you found in it at such an early age. Um, for me, what I, um, this is going to sound kind of strange, but I really appreciated um, the very, very subtle magical realism. You know, it wasn't it wasn't as overt as like Isabel Allende or Garcia Marquez or um, you know, I don't know, like Samantha Schweblin is probably like a more recent author. Yeah. Um, but it's this very subtle he he puts you in this in this world where everything is off by just a millimeter <laughs> and he, like he creates and 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 so much of um so many of the worlds that he create are uh domestic which is really interesting to me especially yeah. from like a male um so he creates these worlds that feel very familiar and he puts you in the routine um you know and and there's there's a checklist for all murakami novels and i love it You've got mm. a disaffected male lead, you've got unavailable women, you've got cats, you've got whisk, and you've got jazz. If you have those five things, you've got a Murakami novel. It's so um, funny. That might even make a Murakami short story, which I was reading too. <laughs> the, the classic one bur the, about the burning, which, or I guess the Bong Joon-ho movie is called Burning, but I don't, I forget what the story's name is. No, I don't think it's a Bong Joon-ho movie, Burning. Is it not? No, it's not. Okay. It's a, Nick, it's a, Nick, it's a cut that. <laughs> Mick, it's edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a, he's not a, I mean, with everyone's crush and it's Steven Yun. Um, it's Steven Yun. Yeah, he's the lead in Burning. Um, but uh, yeah, so what I appreciated was just um, the way Murakami infused the everyday with this really like subtle magic um, and sometimes a way more explicit magic, like sometimes a way more in your face kind yeah. of magic. And, and it wasn't always like, you know, this like happy, festive sort of magical realism, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, sometimes it could be really sad and, and then sometimes it could be really lamenting and sometimes it could just be straight up bizarre. Right. And, um, yeah, I just, there was something about it. The one that really moved me was Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Um, and it's, it's like very literally about like going into the recesses of the mind. Um, and yeah, I, you know, and there's an extensive storyline with like unicorn skulls and <laughs> yeah, uh, that's so, so strange. He brings, yeah, he brings some sort of eclectic magic to the front that seems like, you know, a way of, uh, like interpreting the world. It's like a whole viewpoint, which is, I think. I think what's maybe interesting about these really formative writers, there's like, and Dave Foster Wallace is the same way, like, especially Infinite Jest is like such, it has such an opinion, it has such a viewpoint about the world it's creating. And I think at that time, because, you know, it was your sophomore year, it was my sophomore year too, mm -hmm. that we were both like maybe looking for that kind of, kind of guidance or that kind of way of seeing. Yeah, 
I think so. And um, my sophomore year of college, I also took one of my first writing courses, which was yeah. uh, <laughs> in a very you know typical liberal arts fashion, a writing course in fairy tales, mm. um, where we read and wrote our own fairy tales. And I've always sort of had a a, a tendency to um, like you know very whimsical, magical things even if they're incredibly dark um yeah. which if i i don't know what's more whimsical and dark than like uh the brothers grim or uh <laughs> anderson it's like uh, um but yeah so i mean i think you know that's probably no accident that i gravitated towards murakami at the same time yeah um, that i you know was sort of developing myself as a reader yeah and, uh, and sort of starting to engage with literature in a in a different way yeah yeah absolutely so yeah. um you know and and before that i read a lot of you know i read a lot of ya a fair amount of ya yeah um, i one of the most formative series for me ever was this british series mm -hmm. uh, the first by louise renison the first book was called angus thongs and full frontal snogging <laughs> i've never <laughs> heard of this book it is phenomenal it is a it is a young adult series i've always described it as bridget jones's diary for like 14 year olds um, <laughs> the, the character's named georgia and she goes to this private school and she has friends and it's just like the most like quintessentially british humor and it was i thought yeah. it was the height of comedy when i was like 13 or like 12 13 14 like i thought it was just the funniest yeah i'd ever read did know? it make those harry potter characters seem like just absolute like bores like was that your comparison point or were you were just or were you just kind of like wow this just feels like a next level of comedy or or interest no as as a as a preteen and teen that had like a very predictable like anglophile viewpoint because of harry potter yeah uh, wasn't disappointed by other english things that i was just like actually like way more into them because of that <laughs> right right um, right so yeah so that was super formative i you know and it's really weird like the things you gravitate towards like yourself and the things that you're assigned to read you know catcher in the rye i know why the cage bird sings um hmm. you know all those things that you kind of take for granted, but, um, you know, end up being a lot more formative than you might really think. I mean, I still don't like Catcher yeah. in the Rye. Um, I still love, I know why the cage bird sings. Um, right. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, there's not exactly like one turning point at which I became a reader or writer. And it's like, uh -huh. I think who I am as a reader is still um, completely evolving. Absolutely. You know? Um, you know, I, I went through a phase where I was reading solely like nonfiction. I was reading like yeah. Maggie Wilson, Melissa Phoebos, Joan Didion, uh, Alexander Chi. I was reading, uh, you know, Durga Chubo. I was like only reading like new, yeah. I mean, section of like Joan Didion, maybe like pretty recent, like nonfiction was just obsessed with like memoirs by like queer women. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I kind of did a hard about face and got really obsessed with fiction again so yeah, yeah my my reading taste definitely goes and comes in ways. for sure that's one of the best parts about a bookstore like skylight books and just a, a lucky perch we get as booksellers is that we get to whenever we get to go on 
go to work at a bookstore, we get to go shopping as well. Yeah. And like get to develop these, like, I mean, this is what I do is like, I sort of like plan out the person I'm going to become <laughs> in the next year, like via the books I plan on reading throughout the store. I love that. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm reading that biography of Frederick Douglass. Then I'm going to go over to like and read like this science book about quantum mechanics. And then like, I'm going to read up on angels because we have a book on angels now. Why would it like, be? why not? And, you know, that's sort of that to me that has become the, the real fun of, of reading in later life is just like really, really realizing the scope of what's in front of you. And, you know, this kind of this sense that you can get absolutely lost in it in a really good way. You know, it's, you can get lost in, in your reading and what, what you set out in front of you. I think that's an experience that's maybe a little bit hard to find in the world these days, but you certainly yeah. can do it with books when you have them all in front of you. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, I don't know, it might sound kind of corny, but there are very few things that I lose myself in or that I feel just like so overwhelmingly compelled to yeah. As books, it's like, I, you know, I wish, um, I wish there was something, you know, people have, a lot of people have the capacity to like lose themselves in like so many things. And yeah. for me, it's just, um, it's just, do you ever sort of feel that overwhelming sense that you're just behind when it comes to reading? Oh. Yeah, yeah. So I absolutely all the time. And, and sometimes it makes me feel very, very anxious. And sometimes when I think, but that's, that's a little bit when I'm comparing myself to say others, or I'm, I'm like, man, I'm not at the level I should be at, or like, I'm not, I haven't read these books. And it's like, wow, I would be a better thinker if I had read those books. I would be a better writer if I'd read those books. Yeah. But I do, like I was saying, I do think that there is another side of that, which is to say that reading is so entirely inexhaustible, no matter how dedicated you are. Mm -hmm. Like you cannot read everything. It is impossible that it, it, it can be liberating in a sense. Cause then there's, there's no finish line to it. You just meander through it. You create the path you want to create within like an infinite scope. You, you can't get to the end. There is no, there is no end, I guess. For me, that's, that's a little bit where the difficulty comes in is because um, at a certain point it becomes a decision of where you're going to allocate your attention yeah because you know and a thing that i feel like i get caught up in specifically as a bookseller is this pull i mean and this is like a a pretty you know gross simplification but like the pull between the old and the new you know it's like you have new titles coming out constantly and smaller presses and uh -huh. there's just so many there are just so many new titles to learn about which is so exciting you know new yeah. books come out every tuesday and every Tuesday, there's a new <laughs> hardcover or a new book that wasn't hardcover yeah. paperback. And then there's the part of me that's like, oh, you haven't read Moby Dick yet. You haven't read War and Peace. You haven't read like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But that's, yeah. I, I mean, I know that there's like this, there's this, there's this, the canon, the pressure of the canon is like for very real because we're taught at a very young age when, especially in colleges that like, these are the books like this is what literature is it is these things yeah. and it's it feels like there is in some sense you're never going to be able to quite to understand literature unless you read those books even though we've done plenty to poo poo that idea rightly so it's dumb 
Yeah. But I it mean, still is this lingering thing because of the way we're taught. Yeah, and I, I think I think what's, you know, kind of reassuring um, is, you know, the what is fed to us as canon, like, you know, in college, in high school, and thereafter, like working in bookstores or not. Yeah. Um, is really dictated by this like very like white cultural point of view you know and it's like they're like the quintessential like authors of color that are allowed to be part of the canon for sure and like what's really cool you know like you have like your tony morrison you have your langston hughes which are like i mean brilliant beyond brilliant like you know how i feel about tony morrison (laughs) (laughs) um and uh you know and and what's encouraging and what's really encouraging about being a bookseller is getting to see like what kind of feels like the formation of like a new canon or maybe just destruction yeah. of canon entirely um that is just so much more open and so much more predicated on 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 valuing non-white perspectives totally. and you know, like non-white non-heteropatriarchal perspectives yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I think that's totally right. And for, I mean, and what that does is maybe make the canon so encompassing and so inclusive that it can't hold as like this, like one unitary structure, right? It's like this thing yeah. called the canon, which has like 30 books. Like maybe, maybe that, that opening of the arms of it explodes it and destroys it, but that's for the better. And if, yeah. you know, in the end, we all end up creating our own canons. It's like, that's fine. Yeah. You know, we ought to do that. We ought to feel like our reading experiences are as vital and as legitimate as anybody else's. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And, um, you know, that's not to say that everything that is, you know, considered like the height of literature should be ignored. Cause I'm definitely not saying that. Um, no. And there's so much of it that I still have yet to read. Like there's so much that I, I still have yet to read. Um, and it's like the blessing and a curse of being a bookseller is yeah. like it's the best problem to have of being like wow there is so much more that I yeah am excited to discover um, you haven't even read Dune yet I mean <laughs> don't put me on blast <laughs> <laughs> well there's a movie coming out soon you can just <laughs> oh T Chalamet yeah T Chalamet um, um, I wanted to ask you what are your what were the we can maybe go through this quickly or or not um okay. what are your your top reads in the past year or super recently or just like what's your what have you been doing what's your reading what have i been doing um i've been i've been pretty hard back into fiction i have not yeah. done a lot of non-fiction right. lately um mm-hmm. i'm trying to, i mean i just read um beloved by tony oh. Oh and goodness. i phew, I don't think I've ever been so emotionally gutted by that that book I'll never forget reading that book that that was that was an early book for me when I was just like it's like okay yeah maybe I was like oh I could it's it'd be cool to see like to do what you know David Foster Wallace did for me in my brain and then you read Beloved and you're like holy shit what have I just read what is this thing that just happened like there's there's such a force to that book that is unmatched in any anything i've ever read i I think 
Yeah, and it's so funny because I I didn't read my first Toni Morrison book until last year, mm. uh, which is, you know, it, it, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but like whatever, you know, we all come to things when we come to them. And of course. You know, I started reading Toni Morrison last year, and I did not realize how much like she informed so like all the stylistic. Yeah. Um, you know, wordplay and formatting wordplay that like seems so fresh and like revolutionary and a lot of work today. Like Toni Morrison was doing that. Oh, and <laughs> better than any, and ed, better and, than anybody. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize it. And it, it, it's just jaw dropping. Like it, it, almost bring, <laughs> it almost brings tears to my eyes to just yeah. like think about her. And, you know, and the scary thing is my takeaway from Beloved I mean, not my only one, but <laughs> I had a lot of takeaways, but one of them was, I never realized how much my mother loves me until I yeah. read it. I never <laughs> realized how much your parents love you. Yeah. And then I read that book and I was like, oh my God, like, yeah. love is demonic and amazing and beautiful and destructive yes. and also the life save. It's just... I know, it, it is, that there, that is what it is. The, Toni Morrison's always dealing with like, I mean, in what I've read of her, it seems like she's always sort of dealing with this double edge of beautiful things. Like mm -hmm. beautiful things like love are like, they're both obviously this gorgeous positive, but they're also demonic. They make you do, and they compel you to do um, heinous things sometimes, mm -hmm. which is Beloved's full of heinous acts. But at the end, it is, I mean, it's a stunning testament to love as well. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the beauty of, I guess, of a parent relationship. So yeah. it's like, it, it makes you sort of like, it makes you, you tremble a little bit thinking about the consequences of that, of that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you might think of that is beautiful is also like incredibly violent. Yeah. And I mean, it's also just like the most stunning and comprehensive indictment of slavery I think I've ever read. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that book. Um, yeah, I I think after you read that book, you can't imagine that slavery was a reality. And no, um, because it, I mean, you know, I I yeah. I have this bad tendency of after reading something, is I immediately want to know everyone's opinion. So I, of course, like right. Google's. Uh, beloved reviews and mm -hmm. there was a review calling it like the great um you know uh horror novel of black literature yeah and i was like oh of course it's horror of course it's a horror story yeah like you know you think it's like this it, it is of course like this great profound piece of literature but it's also classic horror you know classic. i i didn't that didn't occur to me um yeah and it was really exciting to like um, make that connection that someone else made for me, <laughs> but um, well, it, it's interesting because this it, we call we call a lot of like genre now has this place in literature that it didn't that we say oh wow genre all of a sudden is like back in literature or something. But then you see, you know, beloved Toni Morrison writes this book. I think it comes out in ninety three, ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, and it's it's totally a genre piece. There are ghosts like haunting this house it's a yeah. it's a ghost story yeah um but you know it's 
in that sense, it's just like, she was just so ahead. She was just so ahead and so free. And, yeah. and their freedom brought her to some of the most brutal places. I mean, yeah, as you say, her depiction of slavery is, I mean, the most shocking, brutal indictment you could imagine. Yeah, definitely. Um, so aside from Beloved, um, some major standouts from the past year or so. Um, the Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. Yeah. It's definitely one that I was just exceptionally, I was just floored. Yeah. Um, just amazingly done um and the book of x by sarah rose editor yeah just stunning um just i <laughs> you know it's a book in which there's something called a meat quarry and you go and you harvest meat from caves made of meat and Great. Great. it's uh it's just one of the most um love that it's meat just quarry <laughs> it's just one of the most amazing depictions of what it's like to live in a body that you feel like you have mm. no control over. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, like how much your body can really be a prison when it doesn't look the way that society thinks it should, you know, which sounds like a very yeah. like kind of like blanket body positivity bullshit kind of phrase. Yeah. I mean, it's really true. It's like we all live in bodies and yeah. I think, I don't know for certain, but I think that everyone to a certain extent has felt uncomfortable in their own body at some point mm -hmm. or the other. And um, this book just really drives home that reality in such a beautiful, mm. tender, like heartbreaking way. Yeah. Uh, that's a $2 radio book. Excellent small press. Yeah, very good small press. Um, um, yeah, I, I um, I love, there's a great book of theirs called, um, oh boy, I just had it and I forgot it. Oh no. Uh, wait, hang on, I have it behind me somewhere. Oh, uh, White Dialogues book by uh, Bennett Sims, the short story collection. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that in the store for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good short story collection, genre E for sure. Um, um. Yeah, so I mean, my my books the past year, um, I've been I've been running the Coyotes Book Club, so we've we've read some really really good books. Um, probably the best ones that we read, honestly, Sula, uh, Giovanni's Room, oh, which so I had not gotten into much James Baldwin, and I'm convinced he's just the best, like pound for pound, like the best writer. That period. book destroyed me emotionally. Destro destroyed me. I, we read it at the same time, and yeah, I, just, I was, I, I didn't know that that's what James Baldwin did. It was the first James I know. that I'd ever read, and um, yeah, I was also similarly emotionally flooded uh, by that it book. Just, it was just like, uh, oh, I didn't know that uh, English could feel that way, like language could feel that way. It's such a perfectly written book. And I mean, gut wrenching for uh, for everybody. It, it is a true tragedy that book. Um, oh my god! I know. I just yeah. It's like so weird the way that like Giovanni just becomes like. I feel when when I when I walked away from that book, I felt less like Giovanni was a character more than he was like this locus for like everyone else's desire. Like he was yeah. like this vessel that was like filled with everyone else's desire, and he ended up 
where he did. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah. Well, because he 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 didn't get to dictate his own no. path. He was everything was dictated for him by no. you know being in the crosshairs of everyone's desire, and I thought that was just like astounding. Yeah, I, it's astounding because it become it, it there is nothing that it refuses to to come to easy definitions about who Giovanni is. Yeah, and everybody in the book seems to is very very confused in this most incredible natural seeming way, just a way that is just true that people don't know who they love, they don't know quite how they love, and especially at this time when it's literally like. If you are gay, you are either like, you know, it takes place in the 1950s in Paris. You're sort of like either this, you know, I don't know, you're, you have to live on like the, the, the edges of society or you're just this like sort of, um, I guess, fetishized thing. And it's, and it's like Giovanni gets caught in the middle of that. He's yeah. both like being rejected from society even while he's being like, clawed at and everybody he, he becomes everybody's sort of um revelation about themselves like the means for them to like be who they are including for the main character david who ends up being i think that's his name mm -hmm. david who ends up just abandoning him in the most uh, yeah. despicable <laughs> i mean it is god awful to, but i mean i just a, a an amazing book yeah, I think one of the books that came really close to that for me, like, like um, this could fall easily under the, you know, formative titles and top reads is uh, yeah. Top of the Dervervilles. Oh, but, yes. You were telling me that you saw, that you read this recently, right? And you yeah, loved it. it. I, I've never read any Thomas Hardy. Um, and I picked this up kind of on a whim. And I just like, I, I was so blown away. Like I was so blown away that something <laughs> so far removed from my own reality could be so, yeah, could have such an impact. I mean, I know that sounds um, not very thoughtful. I mean, obviously people are impacted greatly by <laughs> stuff. Yeah, but it, it's funny how experience you in certain novels, you realize that experience is uh, much more of a continuum than you think. Yeah, and so, I mean, this is, I think, one of the few books where I got so invested that, you know, at certain parts, I would, like, literally throw it physically across the <laughs> room because I didn't want to keep reading it, and wow. I just, uh, th there's this line in it, and it's, like, thy damnation slumbereth not, um, oh, like and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking, and it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's it's tragic it's it's like a worse star-crossed lovers type thing because it's a woman who's not only in this sort of star-crossed relationship but she's also kind of similar to giovanni just completely abandoned yeah because she is deemed unfit by the rules of society at huh. the time she's existing and she doesn't even really have a hand in her own destruction she's really just a victim of so many forces that are out of her control a lot yeah. you know like giovanni and um it's just a feat of writing and also a feat of you know world building and yeah. um you know because hardy builds this like fictitious english country side 
and um, it's beautiful. It's like so evocative, so luscious, yeah. so rural. Um, you just like want to be like in a glen with some sheep while you're reading it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Love a glen. Yeah. It. Um, it's. It, it's stunning. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, I mean, that book comes out 20 years before, say, House of Mirth, right? Which is working in, like, a similar territory. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, which is, which is funny. Um, just to bring it all back, to circle back <laughs> to the, one of the first books we talked about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, another book I read quickly, uh, Last Samurai. Everybody, you should oh, read it. <laughs> I loved it's been it. A very book. Yeah. Yes. It's a uh, Vulture's top book of the two thousand of the of the millennium. Ooh. Which is interesting. Did they um, forget that Zadie Smith exists? <laughs> well, what's Zadie Smith? Which book? What do you mean? On Beauty. Oh, I haven't read that. Oh man. Okay. That's also one of my top reads of the past year. You. Okay, I'll read that. I'll put that on the list because I do love White Teeth, even though I, I understand it has problems, but I love that book. I feel like we've been talking for... We've been talking for a really long time. I think we definitely have been talking for longer than we were supposed to be talking. Yeah, we've definitely been talking for like an hour. An hour, yeah, for sure. Is this even going to all make it? Oh, I don't think so. Oh my god. I don't think so. We were supposed to give like 15 minutes, right? I know, I know. Well, whatever. Oops. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey got some homework, pal. Sorry, Mick. Too bad. Sorry, Mick. I guess that wraps up our convo on yeah. life, love during a global pandemic. I guess that's redundant. I guess a pandemic is global already. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're careful with words. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Um, please continue to support Skylight mm -hmm. if you are able to. Um, we are doing online orders. Um, you can buy gift cards. Um, there are a multitude of ways to support us. Just check out our website and our social media. And um, if you are able to do any of those things, we would greatly appreciate it so that we can continue to bring you quality content such as this. Mm-hmm. Awesome podcasts and uh, book discussion and tales from the tales from the from the books from the book cell from the hand cell. Tales from the Black Lagoon of books. That's right. Anyway. Yes. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. Wash your hands. Okay. Yeah. Don't go Washer. out. Don't. You know, your civil liberties are not being threatened by, no. by staying in your apartment. Just stay. Stay inside. Stay read a good book. We just talked about so many. Just choose yeah. one of the ones we talked about. Literally choose one of them. Buy them at skylightbooks.com. <laughs> read one of those books and have a great time staying inside. Yeah. Um, and if you have thoughts, questions, comments, concerns are just responding in abject horror to everything we talked about, yep. um, send an email to info at skylightbooks.com. All right. All right. Thank, thank you guys. for listening. Bye.
We did it! <laughs> we did it! Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.